about having two bends today, but I thought that would have been, you know, that's old, <laughs> telling a joke. But anyways, uh, so I didn't come up with one. Uh, but church discipline, um, you know, it's an exciting topic. Not exactly the topic that you'd want to teach on if you're inviting new guests here or trying to uh, attract people to our church, but still an important issue, an important topic. Um, yesterday, uh, while I was preparing it, I, I, and I was still kind of fumbling through the passages, I was just so kind of nervous and so stressed uh, that at one point I told Susan, man, can I not do this? Can you teach this for me? And she said, uh, well, if you want to trade jobs. And I said, of course, I'll, yeah, sure, I'll trade jobs with you. And she, then she handed me a diaper with like this disgusting poo. And I said, nah, never mind. Okay, I'll teach. So I'm here. Uh, but nonetheless, I'm a little nervous. So let's pray. Can we pray for, uh, let's pray for this, te- this time, this teaching that um, really uh, that we'd be excited about this text and that, uh, yeah, God would bless us through it. And so let's pray. Lord, Father, I just pray to you. Father, you know my heart. You know the nervousness in my bones. And Father, I know that you are the one who gives peace. You are the one who gives a calmness. And ultimately, we know, God, that uh, you love us. You love me. And the God that um, can give surpass, that is uh, all the peace that I need. And so I pray, Father, that you would help me think less of myself, that you would help us think much of you, that you, God, would help me um, and this teaching to love our people, and that you would help us uh, trust and seek your word. And so we pray for this time, that God, you would bless it. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so just as an introduction, um, even as I was just thinking about church discipline, I thought, imagine, right, imagine a world, imagine uh, a home where there was no discipline, right? Imagine, um, you know, a, a, a house, if your house, children were not disciplined. If children in your home were allowed to run amok, if you allowed them to throw tantrums, to yell, to scream, to steal from each other without discipline. I mean, chaos, right? I mean, uh, I think it's not that hard to imagine, especially since we have our, you know, after second hour, we have our snack time. But um, that is exactly what actually happened in uh, millions of households in China from 1979 to 2003. And uh, I don't want to insult Chinese people or say that this is every single household. But on a large scale, uh, if you know, uh, 1979, uh, in 1979, they implemented the one-child policy, right? So uh, what you remember then was because of the overpopulation, the large amounts of growing population in China, the government, the communist government, instituted that every household in China was only allowed to have one child. And so, as a result, the parents, right, would pour for, because they knew that they were going to only have one child, one child in their entire life, they would pour all their affection, all their attention, all their money, all their joy, all their hopes into this one singular child. And you can imagine how that turned out. Uh, In an article written by China Youth News called The Little Sun in Our Lives, and this is Sun, S-U-N, because it's kind of cute because it's a sun, but it's also the sun that you rotate around. So it is the little sun in our lives. It writes, it tells of a story of one um, set of parents of one of these only childs. He was in third grade, and it said, they bought him whatever he wanted. It t- says, he dined on meat pies while they, the parents ate meager porridge. 
He wouldn't wear clothing that had been more, worn more than once, and that means, I guess, every day he was buying new sets of clothes. And one, in one instance, uh, it, it told a story, and after his grandfather had spanked him for starting a fight in school, this boy then took a pair of scissors, pointed at his throat, and threatened to kill himself until his grandfather would apologize to him and buy him a new toy. And so that's actually what happened. And so though, this, uh, though obvious, right, this phenomenon became widespread in China that they gave it, a, that, you know, they even gave it a name, and the name was Xiao Huangdi Xianxiang, which literally means the little emperor syndrome. And I actually was going to have a picture here, <laughs> but uh, uh, you can imagine kind of what that means. Um, but they said that these children, as they became adults, they basically became little emperors. They were so spoiled, so unused to doing things for themselves, so used to instant gratification, that they did not know how to do hard work. They did not know how to take care of themselves, let alone to take care of something else. And so uh, the problem became so bad that even some companies, it read that, uh, it said that some companies in China would eventually post job postings saying, no little emperors need apply. And though, just as an introduction, though this is kind of a silly example, um, and it's easy for us to notice the problem in, and to criticize the, the, the lack of discipline in Chinese parenting in the last generation, um, it is also true that this problem also exists in many American churches today. Maybe not necessarily in all the circles that we run around, but what we know is one of the threats that faces American churches today is just this, a lack of discipline, right? Not necessarily ch children discipline, but the lack of discipline at all. Let me explain. You know, people, we, we can look in, in churches in America today and we can see people engaged often in all kinds of sin, all kinds of addictions, all kinds of wrong behavior, or at least lack of Christian behavior. And often, instead of discipline, the, the, the ethos, the answer you often hear from Christians is just this. Don't, don't confront them. Don't, don't tell them, these, these people, that they're wrong. Don't tell them they're sinning. That's, you know, so legalistic. I mean, man, that's, you're so proud if you confront them for their sin. That's so, that's so archaic. I mean, after all, God is love, right? So just love them. Don't, 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 don't confront them. After all, love covers a multitude of sins. Isn't that not right? Shouldn't we just cover the sin with love? First Peter 4, 8. And they'll say even, everybody sins. You sin. Don't be a hypocrite. Take the plank out of your own eye. Don't confront them for their sin. You are a sinner. So, past, so these kinds of things, even the scripture, they use as ammunition against the implementation of discipline in the church. So furthermore, you'll notice that people will often point to past historical wrongs, right? The Inquisition, the Salem witch trials, even the book, The Scarlet Letter, you probably have read in high school, will be used to say, look, church discipline has been done in so, so many wrong ways. 
in the church. We need to get rid of it. And though well-meaning, I think these Christians, right, though well-meaning the evangelical church in this response to discipline, the mistake in the above comments is simply this. And we know, we alluded to this already in the introduction, right? Love and discipline, though, are not mutually exclusive. Love and discipline are not mutually exclusive. We know from the introduction that loving children is not necessarily the absence of discipline. Loving the little emperors is not just caving into whatever they want. And the same can be applied to adult Christians. Uh, Hebrews 12, 6 says, For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. And so what we hear is the Lord actually loves, disciplines those he loves. And ideally, what we'll see today is that discipline ideally can be an expression of godly love. And so I did want to begin and say, you know, and define the terms. The topic today is not really um, discipline in general, right? It's, it's church discipline. And church discipline is a much more specific and nuanced phrase than just general discipline. And so, you know, in the introduction, we're talking about discipline. And discipline, in its most general sense, uh, is is a broad, it's a broad scoping set of, uh, set of concepts. Uh, defined, general discipline can be any instruction or correction that guides behavior, okay? And uh, what that means is usually two, two different categories of what that could mean, uh, formative and corrective discipline, right? And so uh, formative refers to the instruction piece. Uh, formative discipline is any kind of instruction uh, that guides good behavior or at least desirable behavior, right? And so we think about that like as in, you know, the disciplines of a godly man. You've read that book. But the idea is training or teaching or instruction or even just memorization that reinforces good behavior. So that is a kind of discipline. And the second kind of general kind of discipline that we talk about is when we talk about corrective or, uh, or corrective or remedial discipline. And this is the kind of discipline that we're talking, we've already started talking about in the introduction, right? And this is the kind of, uh, that, of discipline that uh, dissuades or discourages bad behavior. And we're familiar with that. Spanking kind of falls into, falls into this category. Verbal rebukes, corrections. Uh, even, at least in the worldly sense, uh, prison, imprisonment, or caning, right? These are forms of corrective discipline. They tell you, stop doing it or I'm going to, right, you know, on you. And so there's two forms of general discipline. And, you know, this kind of discipline, general discipline, is common. It should be common. It's, in fact, common in regular life, and it should be common within the church. This is something that everybody should be doing. And even the Bible tells us clearly that we are supposed to be going through formative disciplines. We should be regularly studying and uh, reading God's word, understanding what God wants for us, to how, of how he want wants us to live. We are regularly uh, going to discipleship groups. We're studying the Bible together, spending time accountability, memorizing things. Uh, we're also regularly, regularly doing corrective discipline. We're called to bring each other accountable to the word, to admonish one another, to speak truth to one another when we're wrong. But church discipline is not general discipline, right? Church discipline, rather, is something very specific. When we're talking about church discipline, it's not just anything within the church Discipline, any kind of discipline within the church. Church discipline, rather, refers to a specific t 
topic, which is basically this, it answers the question, how should the church correct unrepentant sin? Right? So this is specifically what properly the phrase church discipline means. How the church corrects unrepentant sin. And this is a specific nuanced phrase. And so I want to just clarify here, uh, uh, just by three, just three important aspects. We're going to look at the subject, the verb, and the object of this phrase. Church discipline is different than general discipline because, one, it involves the entire church. Church discipline is general discipline. Often it deals with just one-to-one -one people, right? Oh, you can't hear me? Oh, sorry. Um, general discipline often deals with interpersonal kinds of interactions, whereas church discipline talks about the whole church. So not just Francis, right? Not just Jen, not just even a, a care group, but the entire church, the well, the 150 of us that are a part of the church, but minus that right now, right? Obviously, we're a lot less right now, but the entire body of the church. Uh, it is, it corrects, right? The verb is corrects. Church discipline is, it speaks about corrective discipline. It's not formative. It's not the, this, this idea of preventing hypothetical sins. It is, it is dealing with real, ongoing sins. Not just in hypothetic, in, the, in, in abstract, but in reality. It is the correction of real sin, an ongoing sin. And the third piece is not just any kind of sin, and not just any kind of problem, but unrepentant, stubborn, characteristic sin. The issue of church discipline is not just dealing with, oh, you know, I lied yesterday. I, I was feeling weak, and I lied about my age. I'm sorry. It's not just dealing with, hey, I think, Susan, you got angry at me yesterday. Church discipline, right? You know, that's not the appropriate venue. This is talking about how does the church, how do we correct unrepentant, ongoing sin? The questions we can ask, the kind of examples I, could, I, I, I thought of were these kind of questions, right? How, like, what if there was a member within our body who leaves his wife for a younger woman? And to be fair, what if it's a wife who leaves her husband for a younger man? What if that happened? What should we do? How should we deal with that? Now, what if they seem sorry, but they do it anyways? What should the do with the church? What should, how should the church address this issue? What if now a person has given them fully into drugs? or addiction, pornography, alcohol, maybe even, maybe even just a simply worldly ambition. They say, you know, I'm going to spend my time chasing after the world. The world's my idol. And they, they're hardly ever at church anymore. I remember there was a, a, a friend of mine, well, I guess a friend, but an acquaintance of mine in college ministry who would tell me, hey, Ben, I'm a Christian, but you know what I love? I love money, <laughs> right? And I think he actually used these fingers too. He said, I love money. Don't let it, I mean, I don't care what other people say. That's what I love. What should the church do with something like that, somebody like that? I mean, I didn't do anything at the time, but what, how should the church respond to that? How should the church correct one who has wandered away, who has left our midst? Should we pursue after them? Should we just love them? Should we call them? What should we do? Should we correct them? 
How the church, the, the topic of church discipline is simply this. It addresses those kinds of questions. How does the church correct unrepentant sin? And maybe you're not familiar with this. Maybe we haven't done, gone through this practically and you don't have practical examples. But you can imagine this is an important topic. This has probably happened in churches everywhere. This, pro- this could happen in our church here. And how should we respond? So what we're going to go through today is address this question. And what we're going to see is that God indeed tells us specifically how to deal with this in his scriptures. And so uh, for the purposes of this, uh, just as an overview, uh, what I want to go through is first the passages that talk about how the church should respond to unrepentant sin. And I don't want to go through what, the, what, what, what textbooks say or other churches have done, but I want to convince you that the scriptures tell us there is something specific that we need to do. And I want, to, I want you to be convinced that it is the scriptures that tell us to do this. Not just man, not just tradition, not Ben Liao, not even the elders or pastors. But it is what scripture tells us to do because it's going to be hard. And I want you to be convinced. And secondly, I want, we want us to go through the purposes. Why the act, this hard act, is good why the scripture tells us to do it. I want you to be convinced that this is good. And lastly, uh, and hopefully I'll get some to point to this, but we're going to go through the mechanics. How do we do this? How do we do this in our church? How do we discipline a, a member at our church? There's so many questions we can have, right? What are the general principles and wisdom in carrying it out? And so that's, that's the basic overview. Um, and so first, the passages, right? Uh, of course, you know, there actually are Interesting, when I looked it up, I didn't see, you know, most people are usually familiar with one or two passages, Matthew 18, right, 1 Corinthians 5, uh, but indeed, there's actually about 10 different passages in the scriptures addressing church discipline. That's a lot, right? You think, oh, well, how, we, how should we be dealing with repentant sin? Actually, there are all these passages. In fact, each one of these is so deep and so complex that, and so, so nuanced that we could spend a sermon on each, and so what I'm going to try to do is cover the three top passages, uh, at least the ones I think will, will at least give us a good survey, uh, and go through them but in fly-by mode, okay? And so uh, don't, don't, don't say, hey, Ben, how come we didn't cover this or that? The idea is let's just go through this in general. And I know you have many questions. Feel free to ask me afterwards. Uh, but let's go through three passages, Matthew 18, uh, 1 Corinthians 5, and 2 Thessalonians 3, and let's see what the scripture tells us of how to address this problem. Okay, so Matthew 18, um, this is probably the most famous passage when we talk about church discipline. Uh, it reads, uh, this is, in the context actually of this, Jesus is now talking, in chapter 18, has talked a lot about sin, a lot about forgiveness, a lot about repentance, right? And preceding this passage, we know it talks about, Jesus is talking about the 99 and the one sheep, right? Out of the 99 sheep, one has gone astray, one has sinned, one has left the flock, right? And now the flock has returned, and is repented, and we are to rejoice. The passage after this talks about the 70 times 7, right? Peter, I think it's Peter who goes to Jesus and asks him, how many times should I forgive my brother if he sins against me? And he said, and he says, 7 times 7? That's a lot of times, right? But you know, Jesus says, no, 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 70 times 7, right? And it was crazy. There's math everywhere. I love this. <laughs> 79, 7, 99, 1, right? But here in the middle, stuck in the middle, is this passage, again, about sin, about how do we deal with a brother's sin. 
It starts, verse 15, Jesus says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. And, and the, so the background is the brother sins, right? And this word is very simple. It's, it's, it's the word that we're familiar with. It's hermartia, hermatano, uh, or hermartia, right? Where we get hermartiology. Basically, the word that means sin, that means missing the mark. This brother sins. And you'll notice that actually in the ESV or in different versions or even in your NASB that they'll have a little uh, footnote that says, that says, and some later manuscripts include the words against you. So he says, so ESV, maybe you'll see, if your brother sins against you. Um, the earlier two manuscripts, the oldest two manuscripts, uh, re uh, omit this phrase, but the later manuscripts then add it, right? So they're, they're saying, okay, well, this is actually only regarding sins, uh, interpersonal sins against you. Um, the translators, though, are a bit divided, but in general, what we notice, though, is the word is still quite broad, right? It's, it's just the word sin. It doesn't list out specific sins. It says, it's the brother's sin. And so maybe it's not as important um, just yet. Uh, and moving on, it says, so what are you supposed to do if your brother sins? And maybe this is not, he's not unrepentant yet, but what should you do if he sins against you or sins? It says, go and then show him his fault in private. And this is particularly interesting, right? Particularly for our day and age. It, it does not say, go and post it on Twitter, right? If your brother sins, go post it on Twitter. Go start a viral Twitter storm against him. Don't shame him. Don't mock him. And I, I will say, I will confess that even reading this, I was a bit convicted. Right? The first thing I do when somebody sins against me is I tell Susan about it. <laughs> I say, Susan, you know, this person did this to me. Ugh. Man, isn't that wrong? hate that person, you know? <laughs> oh, I mean, at least I don't hate them in a spiritual sense, right? My first intuition is to complain, to shame them, to mock them. But here he says, go and show him his fault in private. And if he listens to you, you have won your brother. The first step, Jesus says, when somebody sins is to go and win him. Talk to him, win him in private. Then verse 16, but if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you. So by, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And so again, now here Jesus says the next step. Now if he doesn't listen to you, bring two or three, uh, one or two more with you. He sets this kind of courtroom scene. Jesus is now bringing witnesses to confirm the facts. Because maybe, I mean maybe, I mean, we, and we know, right, sin is sometimes very complicated. Situations are complicated. You know, these one or two witnesses are here to help clarify questions. Did the person really sin? I mean, is there more to the story? You know, are you just reading into the situation, or did this person really sin? And so these two or three witnesses are here to confirm every fact. And so uh, what's not stated here, though, is this, this escape clause. If the facts are not confirmed, if the one or two say, hey, look, we're not sure this is really a, a case of sin, the process stops. Right? This church discipline does not proceed. We do not discipline things that cannot be confirmed. And so verse 17, let's say now he actually, they confirm it, one or two confirm it, and presumably the three now are talking to this brother saying, hey, look, we know you have sinned. We've seen it. We see it. We, we, we have evidence 
about it. We can talk to you about it. Please turn. Please listen to us. And if this brother refuses to listen, notice the strength of that word. He refuses to say, no, I don't care. Tell it to the church, right? It says, tell it to the church. This is not just one or two people. This is not church in abstract. Oh, yeah, this is a church. It says, tell it to the church. Can't the church just be two or three? No, that would have been step six. That would have been verse 16. That would be step two, right? That would have been two or three. Now he's saying, let's escalate it. Let's have them listen even to the church. This is a lot more people. Now you're bringing in a lot more people here. The sin is confirmed. And Jesus is saying, let's bring the church to be involved. Sometimes we think sin is an individual thing, right? Or sin is not the responsibility of the church. Man, I, in our autonomous age of our church, we, we value our privacy, our autonomy, our independence. But here he's saying, who is my brother's keeper? You, me, we. Who is responsible for your sin? I am. Maybe not individual. I'm not going to talk to everybody about sin, but I am responsible. I mean, I'm going to look around this room and find somebody I don't really know. And if I look at you, I am responsible for your sin. And you know what? You are responsible for my sin. That's why you tell it to the church. If a person is in sin and he refuses to listen, you tell it to the church because they are responsible for you. And so it says, now, if, even, if, he, if he even refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And so notice verses 15 to 17, the first part, 17a, is not really church discipline per se improper, right? This is just general discipline. People are addressing you. They're, they're, they're telling you what's wrong. They're, they're trying to help you. They're trying to bring light to your sin. The person is not necessarily fully unrepentant yet or confirmed unrepentant. But by the end, by verse 17, this person is unrepentant in sin. The first person has come, right? You see the process. This process is escalating. It's as if somebody is driving down on the wrong, the wrong way on a dead-end street. They're driving towards a dead end, and you, one person, come to them and say, hey, look, hey, you're going the wrong way. You need to stop. You need to turn. You need to turn around. And the person says, ah, this is one person. It's just Ben. I'm going to keep going, Right? And so you bring in two, now three, and you bring in flashy signs with like flashing lights, and you say, please stop. You're going the wrong way. You're going to hurt yourself. Please stop. And the person says, no, no, no. I don't care. I'm right. I'm going. And now you, it comes out with the, the whole church, right? This is 150 people, and you take out the water barrels on the road, and you set up a barrier of water tanks, and this person, you think, surely this person now must, should listen, should, should, take second, uh, should, should take a, have a second thought to their way. Right, and this person keeps going. Don't care. I'm going through. He smashes through the church. And so what should we do? What should we do? Jesus tells, them, tells us, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And you know, uh, I know Brother Ben who said, you know, the, the scope of God's love includes the Gentiles. But at this point of time in history, the Gentiles were not yet part of the covenant community. In fact, all those people who were following Jesus 
at the time of the gospel were Jews. And so in their minds, a Gentile was a person outside the church, outside the covenant community. Right? And the tax collector, though you know, most likely Jewish, was a person who uh, was a Jewish person who took money from the covenant community and gave it to those outside. So the tax collector would have been somebody who's seen as one who has betrayed or exited the covenant community. And so now Jesus, we can see here, is saying, he's saying, let this person now who has left and refused to listen and has chosen this way of sin, let him be to you as the one who is not a part of this community. Let him be to you as not one sitting in the seats right now. Let him be to you as one outside who has betrayed us, who has left us, who is not a part of us. And it sounds harsh. But what we see here is Jesus is clearly saying what to do with an unrepentant sinner. Right? He's not saying, hey, this is, up, this is ambiguous. You know, this is hard. Let's not do anything because the scripture is unclear. No, the scripture is pretty clear. Jesus is telling us a very hard thing to do. And how do we deal with an unrepentant sinner? He's saying, treat them as not one of us. And so, you know, contrary to the modern ethos, the answer to this question is not just tolerance. Right? It's not just love, love, love in quotations. It's not just keep on loving them. They'll eventually turn around. And to be fair, the answer is not either beat them or flog them or put a scarlet letter on them, right? It's not that either. Jesus says it's very clear. Let him be to you as a Gentile or tax collector. And so maybe we'll go into this in more detail uh, in the latter section, but let's go to the second passage, 1 Corinthians 5, and this is the other uh, most famous text around church discipline. And this, in this context, it's different, right? Paul is talking no longer in hypotheticals. Jesus was talking about a hypothetical sin, but Paul here is now in zooming into reality. This is a real-life instance of sin. And Paul is going to apply this concept of what he should do. He says, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you in the Corinthian church. An immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. That somebody has his father's wife. The sin here, the unrepentant sin here, is incest. Right? Even now, if this happened, we would be shocked. Would your colleagues be shocked if they, if they heard that somebody was doing it in your church? If you said, hey, look, you know, my church is pretty good. Come visit it. But yeah, there's somebody who has sex with his mother-in-law. That would be shocking, even among the Gentiles. Someone has his father's wife, and you have become arrogant, verse 2, and have not mourned instead, so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. And this sounds familiar right now. Paul is saying what should have been done. What should the Corinthians have done in response to this unrepentant sin? He says, you should have, one, mourned. You should have mourned. You should have weeped. You should have hurt over this brother's sin. Maybe the question for us is, do you weep over this kind of sin? Does it make you burdened? Does it make you sad? Does it make you mourn and weep? Your brother has chosen this way. Instead, 
And he says, secondly, you should, you should have removed this person from your midst. That's what they should have done. It sounds familiar, right? It sounds very similar to what Jesus has said. You should have removed this person from the covenant body. But notice here, actually, sorry, let me go down to verse 3. And Paul says, continues, For I on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit. You know, I'm not there, but I feel like I'm there. I have already judged him who has committed, so committed this, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, you know, this has spiritual backing. You know, this, is just, this sounds like Matthew 18. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, as if I'm there with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. He makes it very clear again. Even this is kind of a packed phrase, but Paul is saying it clearly. I've decided to church discipline. I'm going to church discipline this person. I notice the difference though, right? There are some differences between here in Matthew 18. There's no, there's no, there's no go to him in private. There's no, let's take one or two with me. There's not even tell it to the church, right? He's, he's just told the church. There's no time for the church to appeal. The time for Paul is up. For Paul, it's up. The sin is clear. This person is unrepentant. Time for action is now. He puts him out. And verse 6, he says, he continues, you're boasting. The Corinthian church, you're boasting. You're like, We're boasting? Yeah, you're boasting. It's not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? That leaven is that unrepentant sinner. The dough is the church. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, has also been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, get that man out, not, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the le- unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so simply here, Paul is rebuking their foolishness right, for their inaction. Verse 9, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. But I, you know, and so this, I guess this is a previous letter to 1 Corinthians, uh, to the Corinth church. Some believe that there were four letters, but he says in this previous letter, uh, he told them this, don't associate with immoral people. But I did not, he says, he clarifies, I did not mean at all, I, I, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, but I, I'm not talking about sinners in the world. I'm not talking you to be isolated, like Amish, right? This is not what I'm telling you to do. Or with the covetous and swindlers or with the idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. That would be impossible. You, you can't leave the world that you live in. So what I'm, we clarify this, but I actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. That's us, right? We're all so-called brothers, so-called sisters. Right? In, in the proper sense, not the so-called brother as in the, <laughs> uh, the gender sense. But um, this is so-called brother. Anybody who calls himself a Christian, if he is or she is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. But what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove, and he concludes, remove the wicked man from among you. It's pretty clear again, right? And uh, 
thing, uh, one thing to note, uh, the first thing I want to note is uh, that Paul expands the list of sins that are involved. There was a specific incident of incest, but now Paul says, hey, you know, guess what? Not just the incest, but anybody who is immoral, covetous, a reviler, an idolater, a drunkard, or a swindler, anybody unrepentant in those sins must also be disciplined. Put them out. They are the wicked man. And you might think, oh, no, is that me? I mean, I, 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 I uh, you know, don't we say we all have idols? You know, where our hearts are covered, idol making factories, or I, you know, I drank a couple of times and I got tipsy. But no, this is, this, Paul, what Paul is saying here are those, not just a person who is covetous at times, but the covet, a covetous, a person defined by covetousness. He's not just saying a drunk, a person who has struggled with drunkenness and alcohol, but a drunkard, one who is defined by a drunkard. I don't say, hey, Sean, you know, you do taxes, you're a tax accountant, right? Or he's a drunkard, or he drinks every now and then, he's a drunkard. That's not true. What we're talking about here, Paul is saying, if you, your life is defined by these sins, if you have chosen the way of sin, the, the, what is the way? Put the man out. So, Paul um, clearly tells the church here a very clear sense, right? A, a very clear command. We are to judge those who are within the church. The church is responsible for those who are within its midst. Are you responsible for one another? And I know many, many times a lot of us sign the, the membership covenant not really reading the text, right? not really understanding the responsibility. And I don't hold you to that. I don't blame you for that, right? So I'm like, what does the church covenant say? I bet you if I call one of you out, you wouldn't remember. <laughs> but this is what it holds us to. We are responsible for who is in the church. Paul Guinea, are you responsible for which? Yes, you are responsible because you are a member of this church. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. And Paul clearly tells us what to do. And in fact, what, I was gonna, what I'm going to say, and what you're probably thinking already is, it is even stronger than what Jesus has said. Right? Not just treat them as a Gentile or a tax collector, because we can treat them quite well. But he says, remove them from amongst yourselves. Second Thessalonians uh, 3, and this is the last passage, you can just bear with me. Um, uh, but again here, Paul is again writing to another specific instance of sin in the church. He says, verse 6, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus, again here, calling the, 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 the scriptural and the biblical godly authority for this act, keep, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to act, how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. In verse 10, for even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone who is not willing to work, then he is not to eat. So the sin here is unruly, an unruly life. And he clarifies later and he says, it's, not, it's unruly in the sense that this person is undisciplined and is unwilling to work. This person's sin is not willing to work. Um, So again, here, though, we want, I want to note, it's un, this sin is, is, is unrepentant sin. 
it's not just I struggle every now and then, lazy, because I do. <laughs> you know, Susan knows some days I wake up late. I'm lazy. I don't feel like getting up. I'm tired. I don't want to work on the sermon. Yeah, last night I was lazy, and I said, ah, I'm tired. I want to look, isn't the Golden State game still on, you know? And so I watched for a little bit. That's kind of lazy, but that's not what it's speaking of here. This is not periodic laziness. This is persistent laziness. This is straight-out laziness. This person does not work. And so again, what does Paul says, what do we do with such a folk? How do we handle somebody who is not willing to work? They have, um, what he's not talking about is somebody who can't, who can't work. He's talking about this person can work. I just don't want to. I'm going to be a busybody. I'm going to live off of others. I mean, the churches can support me, right? The church supports poor people like me <laughs> who don't work when I can, right? So how should we deal with somebody like this? And I imagine there are people like this even today. He says, keep away from this brother. Again, similar to what Jesus and Paul has previously said. Um, verse 14 and 15, he again clarifies here, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, you know, I think speaking to the prior, uh, this, this prior situation, if they don't obey even what we say then, now take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. So they'll be ashamed. Stay away from them so that he will be ashamed. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now that's interesting, right? Verse 15. Admonish him as a, but do not treat him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. And so that's, this is a question. What, what does a brother mean here? We're supposed to keep away from him, but now also admonish him? As a brother? The question here is, does, what does this brother mean? Are, does this brother mean as a, admonish him as a Christian? I mean, all through the text, brother here has been meaning those in the covenant community. Are we to associate, not associate with them, to keep away from them, but then say, hey, you know, you can't be here, we can't spend time with you, but yeah, I'm going to admonish you, but you're still a brother, you're still a Christian. I, I still consider you a Christian. The more likely rendering, and I think uh, some scholars agree on this, is that what he's saying is not that the person is a Christian, but the, he's talking about how the brother should be admonished or the person should be admonished. Do not regard him as an enemy. Do not be hostile to him. I mean, I know this person is a tax collector or a Gentile, but don't be hostile to them, right? But admonish them as you would a brother. You're still to love them even when they're apart from you. Don't treat them like an enemy. Don't treat them like you do. The Jews have, been done, have, have treated Gentiles in the past, but as a brother, as a friend, as a person you love. And so I don't want to go too much more into that, but it's clear again. Paul makes it very clear. The, the command is clear what we are to do with unrepentant sinners. The answer that God gives us in scripture is to remove the person from fellowship. And I hope that's clear, right? These three passages tell us clearly what to do. Matthew says, if a person isn't unrepentant in sin and stubborn, let them be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector outside the covenant community. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says, to remove the wicked man from among you, take that man and put, take, push, take him out, remove him from your presence. 
And Paul in 2 Thessalonians says it clearly, take special note of that person and do not associate. And I know, right? And often the immediate reaction to these passages and the reading of these passages, and even for me, was the same, right? Doesn't this seem awfully harsh? I mean, isn't there another way? Can we do something more in the middle? I mean, do we really have to remove the person from among us? I mean, how do... What else, what other way is there? And so what I want us to do then is to go to the purpose of the step, to understand why the scriptures command this particular action as the course to take. Um, and before even going to the mechanics, I wanted you to be convinced that this thing, this thing called church discipline, what Paul and Jesus are instructing is good, that you would want to do it. And so let's go to the purposes. And the, I have three main purpose. The first is to save your brother, right? It's clear from the text. The purpose of removing the brother is to save the brother, right? I know often it, it, when we talk about removing and admonishing or uh, keeping away or not associating, our natural reaction is to think, man, this sounds like punishment, right? In a world where we're based off of meritocracy, do good, be rewarded, do bad, be punished. This sounds awfully like punishment. It sounds like we're not loving this brother. We're, what we're trying to do is make them feel the pain of their action, right? The, the consequence of their actions. We're trying to punish them. But Jesus is saying, no, no, the purpose here is to win your brother. Even in Paul says, right, in 1 Corinthians 5, you know, yeah, we're we're making them feel pain for the short period, but not for the purpose of punishing them, but so that his spirit may be saved in the future day. Short-term pain for long-term gain, right? Yeah, I'm putting this person in pain so that they can be saved, not just so they could feel the weight of their actions. I'm not punishing, I'm, we're not disciplining them to remove the person, to hurt them. And then in 2 Thessalonians 3, 14, that may be confusing too, so that he may be put to shame. You think, that well, that's punishment. But no. The purpose is so that person is ashamed of their action. They realize the shamefulness of their action so that they'll turn, so that they'll be saved, not for shame itself. The person in incest is going to say, I am ashamed of what I am doing. What am I doing? The goal is to turn the brother's tunnel vision mind to see the ugliness of his sin. The goal of removing the brother is to save the brother. Oh, sorry. Um, and I think the other hesitancy I just want to address regards to this step often has to do with our... Uh, our fear of inflicting pain, right? You know, often we feel bad about inflicting pain on others. But church discipline is meant to be painful. Is that fair to say? Discipline, we know, spanking is meant to be painful. Hebrews 12, 11, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. What we see is church discipline is meant to be painful. It is meant 
to shock the person. It is meant to remove the sin, to turn from the sin. Right, so when we think that there must be another way, it is often because we think, well, I don't want to give a way that involves pain, but there is no other way. Uh, a second note, the other hesitancy we have with church discipline is really comes down often to our lack of recognition of how severe unrepentant sin is. Right, we think that the pain of church discipline is worse than their current state. Is that not right? We think that the, church, that the act of church discipline is actually worse than unrepentant sin. When we talk about unrepentant sin, we, we all agree, what does, where does unrepentant sin lead? To death. One cannot have Christ in sin. We can affirm that theologically, right? But often what we realize is we, what, we don't reckon, what we don't realize is we don't really believe that. We don't think unrepentant sin is really as bad as, it said, as we believe. Right? Because imagine this. If you had a tumor, a cancerous tumor in your body, what would you do to remove it? Would you go through, would you go through some pain? Would you put your body through streams of radiation? Would you put your, into your body drugs that would just, chemical drugs that will stop cell replication and destroy your body cells and cause you to have nausea, to lose your hair? Would you go through that pain? I mean, I would. I would do anything to get rid of a tumor, a cancerous tumor in my body. And my, many of you know my mother, right? She died when I was young of lung cancer, brain cancer. What would I not do? What kind of pain would I not put her through? Temporary pain I would not put her through? If I knew it could save her from death, if she could be alive today, I would put her through anything. If I believed that sin, unrepentant sin, would lead to death, and death is real, then I would do anything, any kind of temporary pain, to stop it. And this brother has chosen that way. They are going down a dead-end road. They said, I am going to have incest. That is better for me than life. We think of the marvelous and wonderful grace of God. But if we, if we forsake that, is that not death? Would we not do anything to restore the brother? To wake him up? To tell him, this is the way you have chosen. Visibly, tangibly, you have chosen to be apart from Christ. Wake up. Now, what is more unloving? To leave this brother in a lie, you are one of us. We keep on loving you when you have when they have chosen the road to death. Second reason the scripture gives us is this sin is dangerous. It protects the church. To remove the person protects the church. Susan knew that I was, I said, well, who cries over church discipline? Oh, man, Ben does, of course. <laughs> oh, man, church discipline, Woo, what an emotional topic, right? You know, I mean, the second point is it protects the church. It, you know, 1 Corinthians 5, the, the, the analogy is simple. A little leaven leavens the whole dough. We know this, right? It says if you leave the sinner in there, it's going to permeate through the church. 
My example that I had was kind of silly, and I mean I shouldn't go through it, but I really want to. Uh, I remember this time when uh, I was a kid, and it was Mother's Day, and uh, I was like, what kind of good gift should I give a mother? And so I bought her a fancy jar of, of like lo skin lotion. And the problem is, I, so I put it into this really nice glass bottle, and the, the only problem was it, it fell short of the top. And so I said, okay, I need to find another feminine lotion and put it in there to fill it to the top. And so I did. I found one, and I, you know, it was just a little bit, but I put it in. And several of the, you get where I'm going, some of the problem was it's called Nair. The, the bottle was called Nair. And if you know what Nair is, it is hair removal cream, right? And so no matter how little the amount of the cream I put in, right, I mix it up, you know what happens, right? If you put Nair on your face, I mean, just even this, this mixed lotion. No, bye-bye, eyebrows, right? Goodbye. <laughs> and so that is, that is what, what's, what's happening. That's not exactly what's happening here. But what we're saying is that sin affects even a little bit of sin affects the entire, can affect the entire church. It does not stay in its lonesome. Maybe a better example is the durian thing, right? If you put a durian in a room, then it spreads to the entire room. But anyways, <laughs> what we see is often, right? He, actually, Paul says it here, is that what this reveals is, an, is our pride. 1 Corinthians 5, we, you have become arrogant and have not mourned. 1 Corinthians 5, 6, you're boasting. You're boasting in something. And what are they boasting in? They're boasting and saying, look, we can handle sin. I mean, this amount of sin, we can handle it. We can leave it in our midst. Maybe that's not explicitly what they're saying, but that's implicitly the pride of life. And it reminds us of what Samson said, right? Delilah tempting him, asking him constantly how to destroy God and God's people and his strength. He says, well, no, I mean, I know, she, I know what she's doing. It's obvious, right? She's trying to tempt me to tell her the secrets of God. But I'm strong, I'm muscular, I'm big. <laughs> you know, I can handle this. I can control the sin and how we are the same way. I can handle the sin. I can do, oh, Susan's telling me the time, but I can, I can handle it. But here he says, right? Paul says it clearly. Your boasting is not good. You're proud. And the problem is we, we underestimate sin. We think sin is, we can box sin in. But the truth is, sin cannot be hidden. Adultery rarely stays private. Pornography grows into adultery. Adultery grows into bigger sins. Gossip and slander, James says, spreads like wildfire. It can burn a forest down. Once you let it out, you can't take it back. Sin affects spiritual life. What you talk about, sin in your life affects what you talk about, what you think about, how you're involved in the church, what your family spends time doing. Sin breeds sin. Make no mistake, it does not stay by itself. And letting sin stay in the church is to indirectly teach others that you can have Christ and have sin too, and that is a lie. To remove a person from fellowship is to protect the body from the power of sin. And lastly, uh, this is not explicit in our text, actually, but uh, I'm going to touch this really briefly. I know oh, I see it's 1235, but uh, the last purpose of church discipline is to maintain our testimony. We remove the person to maintain the testimony of Christ. Um, Romans 2.23, in this example, Paul tells of a situation where the Jews 
speak the name of God, but they continue to sin. Their heart, their, right, Romans 3, their, their, their mouths are open graves. They're whitewashed tombs. Right? They, they associate Christ with, these, with their sin. And he says, you who boast in the law, through your breaking the law consistently, do you not dishonor God? Or do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blaspheming among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. If we leave the, the, the obvious unrepentant sinner among our midst as a Christian, we tell the world, we taint, we tell the world, sorry, we taint the name of Christ to the world. The greatest, I mean, I, uh, uh, sorry, ah, I won't even go here. But, um, so what, you know, I mean, I'm not, I don't want to go too much more into this one now, but as we've gone through the purposes, what truly then is the alternative? If this is the case, if these are the reasons, what truly is the alternative for a church? Though, for those who think it is harsh and there must be another way, what is the alternative than to removing the person from the church? Letting the unbeliever's sin remain in our midst is not loving to the person, lets them live a lie. It's not loving to the church, it puts it, the church in danger. It's not loving to the world. We pollute the only saving water for the world's sin. Remove the man, the wicked man from among you. And I am really out of time, probably, but I have a whole other section. <laughs> so, uh, what can I do? Huh? What can I do? What do you think, Isaiah? Well, I think that we can, I don't know, in like eight minutes, maybe we can come back to Sure. Okay, sure. I'll go micro machine speed. Okay, but uh, so now we go through why. <laughs> Let's go through the mechanics of how. How do we do this? And really, I think the overall story answer is going to be it's, it requires wisdom. Right? There is no wonderful one-shop solution for everything. When we looked at the, um, the passages, what we noticed that there is a huge variety in the sin, the steps that were taken, even the necessary administration of the final step. Although they have a lot of similarities, at times there are even light differences, right? Some want to know what's the specific sins that we can discipline so I can know if my sins are in the list or not, right? <laughs> but look at the, look at the list. It's so broad, sin against you, or sin, or sin against you in Matthew 18. And maybe that's just interpersonal. But 1 Corinthians 5 puts non-personal sins there, right? Non-interpersonal. Immorality. I'm not harming anybody. Yes, but you're immoral. Covetous, idolater, reviling, drunkard, swindler. Immorality, that's, so, right? There's no set list. Some churches want to have a specific list, but what we're going to see is the important aspect that they're emphasizing is not the sin itself, but the unrepentance, life in sin. What we're concerned about is not a list or legalistic handling. We are concerned about our brothers' lives, their spiritual life. And the second note really is, what I don't want is for people to come here thinking, Man, let's go church discipline everybody, <laughs> right? Let's, everything is, everything's permissible. It's time, yes, right? Uh, Sean, what have you been doing recently? Then we go to step one. <laughs> Do you think it's sin? Where's two people? You know, I mean, that's not the point. 
but a quick clarification, uh, and I think it's, it's useful, uh, Jonathan, um, the sin we're addressing here, at least that we put into church discipline, ought to be visible, ought to be confirmable, right? It ought to be able to confirm by facts. What we're not talking about is suspicions. We're not necessarily even talking about heart motives because then everybody would be under church discipline. I can't stop my heart. What we're talking about is expected sins versus unexpected sins, right? I struggle at times. That's not church disciplinable. No, I'm, I'm going to act it out. I'm going to give birth to the sin. I'm going to publicly express it and live it out. That is when a church, a sin is disciplinable. Okay. Second piece, we see the intermediate steps. There's quite a bit of intermediate steps, right? We see, oh, reprove in private, take one or two. And we notice that even some steps, there are not. He doesn't go through. Like 1 Corinthians and 2 Thessalonians. In fact, Titus actually has two warnings, but the middle two don't. There's no warnings. Right? In 2 Thessalonians, maybe actually he's warned before. He said, you know, I previously have warned that those who should not eat. But in 1 Corinthians, there are no warnings. There's no one person. There's no two people. There's no more uh, escalation. He goes directly to church discipline. And so maybe the principles that we just take from here uh, is that we need wisdom. Right? If Matthew 18 says, if the sin is unclear then take a few more. Confirm the sin. If the sin is unclear, you cannot proceed. So you need to take two. But in 1 Corinthians, the sin is clear. I mean, who doesn't know incest is wrong? Even the Gentiles know. 2 Thessalonians, he says, well, look, hey, I've already warned you before, and you yourselves ought to know. He doesn't need to warn them anymore. They're self-condemned. Right? So, but if, if there's lack of clarity, if you don't know, bring more. Confirm the facts. Take one, take two, take five. I don't think... It matters. Take some. Now, and, okay, so this, and the second question is, depending on how severe the situation is, you take appropriate action. If the situation is severe, take appropriate severe, severe action. Right? If somebody is in danger, if somebody is beating a spouse, you take immediate action. We don't have time. We need to protect the church. There's no more time to put in one person or two people or five people. We need to do it now. We need to protect the church. So, right, it's not, it's not a legalistic holding. Some churches will say, Look, you know, oh, no, you didn't do step two. Don't have time. <laughs> it is, people are in danger. We need to make action now. And so what I'm trying to get across is it requires wisdom for the situation. People have different kinds of sins Jonathan Lehman says as well, he says, people, when they cook up sin, they cook it up with their own ingredients, all in their wonderful fashion, unique fashion. And so our response must be appropriate. And finally, the last step, and this is, this is the hardest and the most, I think, relevant and complicated step of the questions. How, I mean, I've talked about the words scripture uses, remove, avoid, keep away, let them be to you as a Gentile. But how do we practically do this? I think at a minimum, you know, and we know that there's actually quite a bit of different ways people do it. We've heard different words, excommunication, shunning, right? You probably heard that. Shunning sounds like a, a, a scary Amish movie, but, right, you know, and so, but how do we actually do this? Um, I think at a minimum, in, in our practice, in our church, 
What it means is to treat the person as an unbeliever and to remove them from membership. And membership for us says a public affirmation of our church that a person is a Christian. And now what we're saying is we can no longer treat this person or affirm this person as a Christian. They have chosen the way of sin. I cannot say they are a Christian. Second piece is, which was clearly obvious, and then after that is, if a person is not a member, they don't, we don't let them attend member-only events. They do not eat communion. That is for a Christian. They do not come to Christian-only meetings. We don't have them serve in Christian-approved ways. They can't go, we, we don't endorse them to teach the word, to, to, to preach the gospel on a mission, sort of missions team, because, hey, we don't know if they're Christian. We're not going to bring a Muslim person here to teach the gospel. Right? That, that's obvious. And so that is what's obvious about, that is the obvious. Now the question is, there, there are a lot of other side questions. What does it also mean? What does Paul mean by not eating with even such a one? What does Paul mean by remove? Is it physical? Is it forced? What about public worship service? Do we let unbelievers here? Yes, we do, of course, right? So is that okay? If it's my spouse, can I still, you know, eat with them? Can I still spend time with them? And really, the simple answer I'm going to give you, and it's not an answer for every situation, is this is not a legalistic process, framework. Use wisdom. The point, think of the purpose. The point is to not pretend everything is okay. The point is to protect those who you think can be influenced. The point is to not give the impression that this person is a Christian even to the world. If spending time with your unrepentant mom does that the way you're spending it, then maybe you should stop. But if, hey, if the world says, hey, look, you know, he's spending time with his mom, even though she's not a Christian, I mean, wisdom. Lastly, okay, the last point I was going to talk about is even just the nuance of, of mechanics is who is responsible for this act? Who is responsible for church discipline? And you might think the best answer, the easiest answer would be Francis, Isaiah, the elders, right? Huey, that's the best answer. But let's, we, we looked through the scriptures. We looked at the passages. Nowhere in there actually says the elders. Nowhere in the text. Take the elders with you. Take one or two elders with you. Tell it to the elders, and then now they all excommunicate them. It doesn't say that. I mean, maybe it's wisdom in using, well, I mean, in having this, those who are spiritual restore. It's, it's definitely good for elders to teach, to lead the way. But the responsibility, he does not give to the elders. It's the church. Who's responsible for church discipline? Who is responsible for it not happening? Who is responsible for removing the person? It's you. Who, me? Yes, <laughs> you. Ironically, it, it was the, pap the papacy, right? The Catholic Church that wanted to take the responsibility away from you. The reformers who put it back in your hands. But it is clear the responsibility of church discipline rests on the church. It is the church that tells. It is the church that pleads. It is the church that rejects. It is the church that avoids. It is the church that restores and forgives. It is your responsibility, my friends. And so lastly, how, how do I conclude? How do you end a teaching like this? How do you apply it? Let's go out. Let's go out in church discipline. Let, let's, hey, let's go sit.
discipline in ways that you can church discipline, right? Is that the way we apply it? I mean, I don't think so. When I was thinking about our church, it's, it's hard to apply this text. Most of you probably aren't stuck in egregious sins. And if, but if you are, please tell me. <laughs> it's because we can church discipline. Do you love you? But, you know, I mean, most of you probably aren't, right? We're not going to be like, oh, wow, you know, you've, you know, if you've left your spouse, I don't, we don't know about it. I mean, but it, you most likely are not in that case. But I think the way we can apply this text is firstly to take sin seriously, right? More often than not, we, we, we do. It is only us who know how seriously we take and introspect our own sins. You know, many times we sin in ways that are not visible, not egregious, but we tolerate unrepentant sin in our hearts that we can't church discipline. Take that seriously. If you don't take it seriously, you're not going to take it seriously in somebody else. If you don't take it seriously for yourself, you're not going to take it seriously for your brother or your sister. If you don't think it's going to lead to death, you're not, you're not going to take it seriously. And the second one is, the reason I don't think, I mean, for most of us here, we're pretty well biblically educated, and we, we, we agree with church discipline. So it's not that we don't do discipline because we disagree with it. We, it's because we don't do discipline because we're not in each other's lives. Right? The second point of the purpose was we want to protect our church from sin. But if our church is so far apart, if we are dominoes so far apart from each other that if we fell, it wouldn't even touch the other. We're not going to church discipline. We don't. If we're not in each other's lives, would we even care to church discipline? Sure, we talk about sports, jobs, the new movie, but do you care about the spiritual state of your brother? And maybe some of you do. But I think if this is not the case, that is something we need to, you can grow and apply today. Uh, so that being said, let me pray. <laughs> Lord Father, we thank you today for even church discipline. Your wonderful, unrelenting, and pursuing kind of love that does not let us stay in sin. The wonderful love that saves us from death, that amazing and merciful love that redeems us. And so we do pray that we would cherish it. We would see the despicableness of sin, that we would see the love and the amazing grace and mercy of discipline that we find in Jesus Christ. And so we pray for today. We pray for our uh, meal that we'll share together, that we would truly be in one another's lives, that it would not be superficial, but it would be real. In Jesus' name we pray.